Thank you, Mike. That was my fault. I was trying to set a mood since I'm speaking, so it's a little dark in here. Uh, thank you, Linda, for letting us use your candles. Uh, and Sheila, we brought candles today. So why did we bring candles? Um, I come from a long, not so proud, uh, Lutheran tradition. Uh, my whole family comes from a Lutheran background, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, and uh, as far as I know, blacksmiths, farmers before then also attended the Lutheran church, and we make a big deal about Christmas, especially Advent. So since I was speaking on this first Sunday of Advent, I wanted to bring candles, and that's why I lowered the light a little bit. So Advent is a tradition that comes... I think we're talking back before the, the Middle Ages, but basically it's a church tradition from the Eastern Orthodox Church um, where you celebrate the anticipation of celebrating Christmas Eve, which is the coming of the, the, the childbirth of Jesus. Um, it's been observed by many churches. It's called Adventus in Latin, which means the coming of Christ. So this Sunday is the first Advent, and then we have three more Sundays, and then we have Christmas Eve. So um, actually, the, I believe the fourth one lands on Christmas Eve, if I'm not mistaken. But um, coming from a, from a culture where it gets very dark very early, we love candles, and we use them a lot. And so I was very excited about getting to speak on one of the four Sundays of Advent. So Aaron spoke last week, and he spoke about uh, Mary and Joseph and their engagement and the controversy around her pregnancy. Um, and so I was going to continue from there, and I was given the subject matter of Herod and the three wise men. So just to give you a little bit of, of um, background to what I'm trying to get at, I was, I was reading the story that I'm going to read for you just here in a second, but also the scripture that Mike read. Uh, I think you notice that there is a, a theme of light. The word light comes up a lot. Um, Christmas is the season of lights. It's the symbol of, of the light of the world coming into our world. Um, and I think often why I want to talk about this is often that as we go through traditions and tradition becomes sort of sentimental and warm and fuzzy, uh, sometimes I think Tim Mackey, he's a preacher up in Seattle, he calls it the VeggieTales version takes over of our Bible stories. So my attempt today is to sort of revisit this Christmas story that we know so well and try to remove the VeggieTale version, kind of bring the Game of Thrones version back into it. <laughs> so if you're a film nerd like some of us are and you actually would try to, to turn the Bible into a script, you'll realize very really quickly that um, it would be a lot like Game of Thrones. So not that I watched that show, by the way. <laughs> Just want to make that clear. So I was, I was preparing today, and Matthias asked me what I was doing. It's been a, quite a while since I've spoken, and Matthias said, what are you doing? He said, I'm going to talk to the church today about um, the birth of Jesus and what that means. And he's like, but everyone knows that, he said. So what are you going to talk about? So I was like, well, it's, it's a lot like you and Elisa. You know the rules of our house, but we need to remind you. It's like, ah. So I'm here to remind you today. Um, as Mike read uh, from the Gospel of John, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, 
was coming into the world. So, you know, my little introduction about Advent and the tradition of that and the tradition of using candles and using light is really just another way of, of us reminding each other and taking, that's one thing that I, I think that particularly in some cultures are better at than we are in America is to take the time to slow down. Um, uh, in some ways I feel like uh, things are so modern and new here, we almost lost tradition, liturgy, remembrance, traditions, because we're so busy doing the latest, coolest thing on Instagram. Um, and there's something about the human condition that, um, that I think is important why we do this, and that's why I kind of wanted to make a little effort and bring some candles. It's because I think taking a moment this Sunday together on the first Sunday of Advent and just sort of reflect on light and darkness and what the Christmas story really means to us in everyday life. Um, you know, I, I, I was looking up a lot of things because I think it's kind of fun. Every time I look stuff up, I learn something new, and I was looking up about the, they actually, I was very excited. They actually have the Advent wreath here. That's a very Scandinavian German thing to do. So you light one candle the first Sunday, second candle the second, and so forth, and then all four are lit for Christmas Eve. Uh, Brian told me I couldn't light it, so I'm not going to do it. But thinking about doing it. But it was invented in 1800 by a German pastor. And the main reason he invented it was because he was tired of dealing with the impatience of the children. So they're lighting a candle every day to help them with the anticipation of Christmas Eve. And I just love that little description of, of another tradition was invented mainly just to kind of find a way to entertain our kids and keep them engaged and deal with their impatience. So there you have it. Um, I read... A little bit out of Isaiah, Isaiah, you know, prophesied a lot about the coming of Jesus. And I wanted just to read kind of like four scriptures that I just very quickly threw together and uh, paraphrased it. But it's basically, the people walking in darkness has seen a great light. This light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. I am the light of the world. Whoever believes in me shall not walk in darkness, but will walk in the light of life. And that is a nice little smack down of Isaiah, John 9, John 12, and John 1, 5. And in one way, I feel like this kind of summarized the meaning of Christmas, why we get together, why we are sitting around a Christmas tree. Uh, where I'm from, we actually dance around it and sing hymns. You, you sit, you don't move. We move. <laughs> but um, the idea of, of giving gifts, the idea of in the darkest time, winter solstice, we are, we're reflecting on light. Um, so I wanted to read my part of the Christmas story. Last week was about Joseph and Mary and sort of the preparation of the birth of Christ, um, the virgin birth. Um, and I want to read out of Matthew 2, verse 2 through 18. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and they're quoting Micah here, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. 
Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose, he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill the Lord has spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years older and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then it was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So... I think we know this passage really well. And I think when we read it, I think, at least I can only speak for myself, often we read these stories and it's sort of like, yes, and then we get the donkey and then we get the thing and then we get the manger and then Merry Christmas. Um, but if you read this closely, um, there's actually a couple of interesting things going on here and some of them I had to look up because I'm not that smart. Um, and I like to sort of, reread something again with new knowledge and see like is there something here that that I can walk away with that can remind me once again what it means to have the eternal light the divine light as Saint Simeon called Jesus um, ignite my heart so a couple of things uh, I I've never really looked into why they gave him the gifts they gave him I was just, just you know Gold and frankincense and myrrh. I don't know if anyone else, has, you know, it's stuff. I don't know what it was for. But I, I, I looked it up and I was trying to figure out what, what is the point of these wise men? And, and why, is Matthew, why is Matthew mentioning this in his story? If you read the other three Gospels, there's no mentioning of the wise men. There's no uh, mentioning of Herod uh, specifically, uh, basically committing an infanticide in, in the city of Bethlehem. So I looked it up. And it was kind of interesting seeing, you know, what, what has the church believed throughout history that these three gifts has been. First of all, we don't know if there really was three wise men. It doesn't say. I think artwork over time has just always depicted three because that's a great number. And so we all think there were three. Um, but no one really knows. But three gifts were highlighted by Matthew. And if you sort of read the, the, the nativity story through Matthew's eyes, it's very clear that he's drawing a lot of parallel to Jewish tradition meaning it's almost like we're reading the story of Moses all over again. Like Jesus is sort of the second coming of Moses. That's not what he's saying, but I think what some scholars believe is that, that Matthew was trying to tell the story of Jesus specifically to Jewish people to see it from this perspective, whereas some of the other Gospels 
are focusing on other parts. Um, I can't remember which one. One is more like sort of trying to tell it from a point of view if you come from uh, outside of the Jewish world, if you're Greek or if you're Syrian or if you're one of the other uh, nations around there. Um, so it's kind of interesting that, that Matthew is, uh, sorry, Matthew is very specifically highlighting things that for a Jewish person would have very significant meaning, would be dealing with prophecy, the promise of a Messiah, a true king, a ruler to come. And then he does something that sometimes we miss coming from the modern world and, and not even knowing how to read these ancient scriptures. Um, he talks about three wise men. Um, the interpretation is kings or sorcerers, but more, more people would say that what they're describing here are like sort of like a, a, you know, a mixture of astronomers and astrologers, meaning not only were they scientists, they also actually studied the stars, um, which of course, according to biblical tradition, is not a good thing. It was actually considered demonic in that time. So he, Matthew uses a world in this story. Very old, he tells a story about these three men are coming, and then he uses the word behold, which is, means like sort of pay attention, surprise, surprise. The Pharisees are not showing up. The nation, the rulers of Israel are not showing up. Three sorcerers, Gandalf, is showing up to this party. That's really what he's saying. The people that you would not think be the first to bow down and bring gifts to the Messiah is from the east. They're most likely Babylonian, which is where Israel was in captivity, which is a painful history, which is sort of offensive. And the gifts they're bringing are the gifts that were stolen from them, brought to the east, and that being brought back, sort of symbolism. This child is worth the return of what was stolen from the nation, right? And again, it's a little reading into it, but it's just kind of interesting trying to imagine if we were in that setting and you heard the story for the first time when you were Jewish. Um, and then you look at what gold meant at that time. It sort of represents deity, kingship, authority. So in, in some ways when I read it, it was almost like these three gifts was a foreshadowing of what Jesus' life was going to be and who he is what he was meant to be and who he is to, to us. So he's, he's the king, he's a deity, he's pure, he's, uh, it represents purity. It also remains, um, means service. So there's sort of three things that Jesus' life that I think stands out for him. The first one was service. He came to serve, not to rule. So that's gold. They gave him frankincense, which is the sort of a, an incense um, that, uh, according to the tradition, um, mm -hmm could mean that it something when you think about devoted prayer, um, but it also means mortality, meaning he's not just a deity, he's not just God, he's fully man, he's devoted, and he has surrendered his divine nature to be incarnated. So again, it's just an interesting little thing I wanted to share with you, just thinking of why are these three gifts mentioned. Last one is myrrh which they believe was a meant of sacrifice, meaning myrrh was an oil, embalming oil you used for a dead person. So interesting gifts to give a newborn, not very sentimental, Merry Christmas, actually some real meaning to this. Um, the death of Christ, which means sacrifice. So there's three things these gifts could mean, which was sacrifice, surrender, and service. Because if you read the life of Jesus, that was... Much of his time he spent teaching on, on these three subject matters, and that's how his life started. And, and it just brings me to this thing that, that 
that I find so hard. I mean, I think growing up in the Christian, with a Christian background, and especially in my later year in a very evangelical background, I think um, I struggled for many years with this idea of, of how the gospel was preached. Um, it was a little bit of, of prosperity. Gospel had taken hold, and it, it began to become like the successful gospel. Nine ways to become a successful human being and to succeed in life. Um, how to become blessed, how to have in abundance, how to have not to deal with sickness or pain or suffering. Um, but when we read the Christmas story, and we're talking about a baby that's not even been raised yet, there's already a foreshadowing of what, what this boy is going to grow up to do and be. And not just him, but also his followers. So if we look at the gifts that were given to Christ... The price of following him is the same three gifts, which are not the kind of gifts I have to say I very often want. Those are not the three, they're, they're often not the top three things in my life I think about when I think about how I would like my life to turn out. I would like my life to be full of service and surrender and ultimately sacrifice. So it actually, it actually is a little bit of a troubling message. It's not a very cozy, drinking glue wine, eating whatever we eat for Christmas. Plum cake, I don't know. Um, this is about how three people from the Far East responds to a baby who is not even a ruler. They kneel, they worship, and they bring gifts. That is how they respond respond to the light of the world becoming incarnate. It's just it's fascinating. Those are the first to come. I know there's also the story of the shepherds, but Matthew doesn't highlight it in this gospel. There's also the shepherds that come. So you have the shepherds, who in Jewish tradition is considered not a job you aspire to do. And then you have three men from the Far East. Um, and then we have someone else in this story, which is Herod. So Herod is the Roman. He's been appointed by the Roman Empire to rule Israel as they're occupied. He's an occupying force. Um, and he's ruling with, with brutality. Um, from what I could gather, just sort of reading what they know about him historically, he was called Herod the Great because he was very busy building, making a name for himself. And what's so interesting about a baby is that we see the response from three men from the east to this baby. And the only thing these three men had, which is also very shocking to the Jewish tradition, is the idea that, that as far as we can tell, they, they studied the stars to find him. We don't know if it was literally a star. There are people that are into talking about, like around the year six after the birth of Christ, Venus and Jupiter sort of aligned and created an extra large star and that could have been the phenomenon that had driven them to Bethlehem. There's all kinds of like scientific research of could this have been a real star that they studied and found Jesus? We don't know. It seems supernatural. But the idea of, of, of these three wizards, as I like to call them, finds Jesus by studying the stars. The, an idea in the Jewish tradition is demonic. It's just kind of interesting that, that 
that God is so about the business of his son that he will wield the very universe to bring attention to him. That the importance of this birth, the importance of this life that's coming into the world is so important that the very universe is affected by it. Whether it's supernatural or whether from the very beginning of time all of the universe was aligned so that someone who doesn't even believe in God reads the stars and comes to Bethlehem. It's just kind of mind-blowing to me. And they bow down and they worship, which is the most important part, their response to Jesus. And then you have Herod the Great, the ruler who finds out about this from the three wise men and is troubled. He's full of anxiety. He's full of fear because he's, all he's worried about is like, who's going to take my spot? And how do I keep it? And, and as I said earlier, this is where it gets a little Game of Thrones-ish. Like he, his response is deceit. Go find this baby so I could worship him too. He lies. He de- he's, he's deceitful. And then once he finds out that they're not going to come back to him because they've been warned in a dream, he just puts out an order just to execute every child that's two years and younger. So the light of the world has entered the world, and this is my point of the second way you can respond to the birth of Christ. It's very extreme, you know. I think there's a lot of room in between bowing down in worship and infanticide, but this story just kind of sets up two ways of responding to the birth of Christ. So I looked it up because I had no idea. I think often because we live in L.A., I just picture people everywhere and way too many people. But actually, at that time, there was not very many people in Bethlehem. They believe there's only a 1,000 people. So that's a slow day in Old Town for us. That's the whole town. And so they believe it's about 20 or 30 children that was executed on that day. And the reason why they don't believe that it's in the history books, other than in the book of Matthew, is that in the eyes of a Roman that's not that big of a deal which is also kind of frightening um, it is simply not mentioned because Herod was known to be brutal lots of stories about him executing a couple of cousins maybe a brother they don't know but his rise to power was a brutal one and um, and so we we stand here we read this story we read these two responses to the birth of Jesus. One is from one who is in power and one is from a people group who's not even considered part of, of the inner circle of the true believers, the, the people that deserve to be with Messiah. Um, and why am I talking about these things? I'm hoping today that talking about light and darkness, it is very much the idea of of reflecting in this season when we can take a moment and usually we get some time to be with family. Um, maybe today to reflect on the fact that where am I in the spectrum of infanticide and bowing down and worshiping? Where do I find myself truly responding to this message of, of Christ becoming incarnate? And does he really have does he really have that kind of meaning and does he really have that kind of power and does he really have that kind of uh, importance in my life? Um, I actually think that if I were to be honest, 
I, I think I find myself somewhere on hopefully a much smaller scale than Herod most of the time when I really think about how I operate and the things that occupy my mind or what I don't want to lose and how I would like to see my life go. I see more of Herod in me than I see of the three wise men. I would like to be significant, if I'm really honest. I would like to leave a name for myself. I would like to be wealthy. I would like to have power. I love to have control. And again, all of us will find ourselves somewhere on the scale, right? But reflecting on light today, the true light, the eternal light, the uncreated light, God himself coming into this world, and we have an opportunity this Christmas season to reflect on, on Jesus, who I've known since, as far as I can remember, since I was a very little boy, who I gave my life to when I was very young, and then find myself in my mid-40s with all the knowledge that I should have and all the stories I've heard and all the meetings I've been and all the prayers that I've prayed, I think sometimes I'm a little ashamed and surprised how much I find myself still, still walking in darkness and not walking in light. Just sort of, I barely see what's right in front of me. And it shows because it is very clear what my belief system really is in any given situation when I see how I react, how I carry myself, how I talk, what occupies my mind and what does not occupy my mind. Am I trying to secure and, it, and stabilize and build upon whatever this little thing I'm doing? Or am I surrendering, seeking to serve my Lord Jesus and sacrifice for him? Um, you know, I think we seek very different things, even as Christians, um, than we would like to admit to ourselves. And I think my point today about living in the light, coming into the true light, like we read in the scriptures, or living in darkness, I actually believe that even though we're Christians and we see Jesus as our Savior, I, I think I can say that I think a big part of my life, I feel like I've lived in darkness. I have not really seen what's really going on in my life. There's an Australian comedian... His name is Tim Minich. He's an artist, he's a comedian, he's brilliant. A devout atheist, if there's such a thing as devout. He spoke in Australia at a, it was a commencement speak, I think, for a graduation class. And I happened to look today, I was just looking for, I don't know what I was looking for. I was looking for what, you know, here's the story of the gospel. What are some of the stories we hear today? What people are advising people how to live. And here's, he had so nine points he wanted to make. I'm not going to read all of them, but you can go on YouTube and you can find it. And it's, it's, a, it's an, an amazingly well-crafted, clever delivery. Very funny, very insightful. And I have to say, sadly, most of it is quite true for all of us. <laughs> and more so, if you look at some other things he says, a lot, a lot of his criticisms about Christianity is sadly also true. At least the Christianity we know in this country. Um, but I just wanted to read a little bit of what he said as an advice here in this day and age. He said, Americans on talent shows always talk about their dreams. Fine. If you have something that you've always dreamed of, like in your heart, go for it. After all, it's something to do with your time, chasing a dream. And if it's a big enough one, 
It'll take you most of your life to achieve, so that by the time you get to it, and you're staring into the abyss of the meaninglessness of your achievement, you'll be almost dead, so it won't matter. I said at the beginning of this that life is meaningless. It was not a flippant assertion. I think it's absurd. The idea of seeking meaning in the set of circumstances that happens to exist after 13.8 billion years worth of unguided events, leave it to humans to think that the universe has a purpose for them. However, I am no nihilist. I'm not even a cynic. I'm actually rather romantic. And here's my idea of romance. You will soon be dead. Life will sometimes seem long and tough. And good Lord, it's tiring. And you will sometimes be happy. You'll sometimes be sad. Then you'll be old. And then you'll be dead. It's an inspiring Christmas service right here. There is only one sensible thing to do with this empty existence, and that is to fill it or not to fill it. I say fill it. And in my opinion, until I change it, life is best filled by learning as much as you can about as much as you can, taking pride in whatever you're doing, having compassion, sharing ideas, running, being enthusiastic, and then there's love and travel and wine and sex and art and kids and giving and mountain climbing, but you know all that stuff. It's an incredible, exciting thing, this one meaningless life of yours. Good luck. That was his commencement speech. Hooray. Very excited. Let me get into graduate school. But you know, here's the thing. I watched the whole thing. Here's the sad thing about, I actually felt like a lot of the stuff he said spoke to me, which kind of disturbed me. Why is so much of what he was saying speaking to me? Why was it resonating with me? And I think it resonates with me because I actually think that a big part of my life, I feel the way he describes. I actually live the way he described. I'm just not being honest to myself. It's not that I'm saying now that he's right. It's just that he put words to what, even as a Christian, I feel a big part of my life I have sort of shamefully felt inside myself. Sure, afterlife, that's sort of like a New York life insurance guarantee. But for now, I'm just kind of filling it with the best possible version I think I can get for 60, 70, 80 plus years I got. It's not something we want to say from the pulpit, so here I am saying it. Sorry, Brian. But I'm just talking about me. If I'm really honest with myself, I actually think I live by this ethos more than the ethos of bowing down, worshiping, and asking the eternal light, the divine light, to grant me the gift of living a life in service, sacrifice, and surrender. Worshiping Jesus means joyfully, joyfully, ascribing authority and dignity to Christ with all our sacrificial gifts. He's the God of light. His purpose is to bring everything in our life into the center of the light, that we may be exposed and see what's really there so that we can be redeemed. 
And that's what I'm saying, why I think so much of my life that has resonated with me is because I think I've had a really flawed view of what kind of life I hope Jesus would give me. Did God really promise us a super exciting, fantastic, pain-free, successful life? We all say, no, no, he did not. We know the scriptures. But I actually think we live in a hedonistic time, and we actually, we actually believe or would like to believe that that's what God has for us. I'm sharing this today because I, I feel like being a Christian for this long, I feel like a Christian who has walked in darkness so much of my life. And my, my desire today to share this is actually I desire to come into the light. I hope you understand what I'm saying. I desire to come into the light and be fully exposed to the very core of my being and see what's really there. And the truth of the matter is that until we're there, we're never going to find peace. We will struggle and we will struggle and we will struggle in this life because we're trying to make it with these grandiose scriptures of peace, of love, of compassion, but we're operating just like Tim Minich's out of Australia. We won't say it. I won't say it. But we're operating that way. I'm operating that way when I'm in a business meeting. I'm operating when I'm trying to get what's mine, when I'm trying to get a raise, when I'm going shopping. So what difference does Jesus really have in our lives? Is he truly the light, the eternal light that has come and transformed us to a follower. My prayer is today that we do not celebrate a Christmas that is sort of sentimental and fuzzy and wonderful gifts and good food, but that these next two Sundays and this Sunday that we would actually reflect on the fact, no matter where you are, I'm not saying you are where I'm at or where I've been, But that the birth of Jesus, what we're celebrating today, I wrote down, is like a radical announcement of incredible hope in the midst of darkness. The world is still a dark place. That's why we struggle sometimes. I think we think that when the Jesus thing happened, you know, he was going to make the world a much, much better place. I think we have all realized, even in recent time, that the place is not, this place is not getting better this world is not in a good place. And we struggle with the concept that actually the hope we have is in him. And it's an internal point of view, which is really, really hard for me to have an internal perspective when I have a five-year-old and a seven-year-old. I am so right here. I want the very best life that they can have. I would never say it, but I want them to have the American dream, whatever that is. Fantastic life, right? And there's nothing wrong in, in wishing for these things. I just think we do ourselves a disservice when we begin to see the gospel in the light of how much we can fill this life with stuff and success. That is not the good news. Those are not why we, that's not why we come together. 
and pray. That's not why we're celebrating the second coming of Christ that is coming. Which, to be honest with you, I can't remember the last time I even thought about the second coming of Christ. I don't think I've thought about it for a long time. Do I even believe he's coming back? Or is Trump going to be president forever? <laughs> it's just a joke. It's a joke. Is things just keep going to be like this? Or is things going to get better? Am I ever going to like my job? Right? Am I the only one? Maybe I'm the only one. But standing and stepping and coming into the light is revelation. It's transformation. Or it's entering into deeper darkness. And I'll find myself one day operating like Herod did, where you couldn't believe you're doing despicable acts. Sure, it's a spectrum. Sorry, I don't know how I always do this. I always seem to be able to be, what do they call her in Saturday Night Live? I'm the Debbie Downer of everything. I don't know. So I have in my notes the great joy of Christmas. And then I listen to myself talk and it's, it's very sad. I apologize. Luckily, I only speak once in a blue moon. Probably the last time. Easter, yes. Death of rams, blood, and sacrifice. Perfect. You know, I, I long, I long for a much more excited version of myself. Christ is born. Glorify him. I think I've, I've entered into a season in my life where I don't even think that I can get there. <laughs> Could I ever get excited again? Am I, am, is, am I that middle-aged? <laughs> you know? I, I long. I'm not, you know, when I, when I, when I studied all this, uh, the good thing is I long for it. I really do. And I feel like, at least we can speak for us, I feel like the season we've been in, this last season, has been the most peaceful we've ever had in our lives. It doesn't mean it doesn't have lots of, of trials and tribulations, but it's been the most peaceful. And that's the first of the four things I made a point about was peace. And I feel like, thank Jesus, I actually take a moment and not be so Danish. There's some, there's some good stuff here. I've actually found peace in my life for the first time. I think it's something about being Viking. I don't know what it is. I, I come from a very fatalistic background. Like, it's just, it rains sideways into your face when you're five and you're on the way to school. Like, you just think the world's out to get you. <laughs> Things are not going to go well. If I was raised in Orange County, I'd probably be a much happier person. <laughs> but the great joy of Christmas, I actually want, just sorry, I want joy. I want joy in my life. I long for joy. I know some of you pretty well. I wish for joy for you too. Not just peace, but actual exciting joy about Jesus Christ. That even though I am super impressed with Tim Minich and his sort of nihilistic atheist ethos, I cannot give up Jesus because you can point out that the story of Nora seems really ridiculous. Yes, I think so too. And so does many of the other stories in the Bible. But when I hear the words of Jesus, when I am in community, when I hear scripture, it's just like I'm in 
in a symphony and every note is playing just right. I can't prove it. I just know that every instrument is playing in tune. That is why I come back here. I just know that Jesus is real. The eternal light, the divine light has become flesh and he's resurrected and he's alive and he has saved my marriage. He's going to save my kids' marriages. And I know he's saved some of your marriages and friendships. And lives, Joe. Where's Joe? The resurrected one. <laughs> so I won't do it until I really feel that it's authentic, but I hope I get there. Christ is born. Glorify him. Let us rejoice. He's real. No matter what Tim Minich or anyone else says, God is real. Jesus is alive. I prayed for a lot of sick people. No one's gotten healed. And I still believe. So imagine what would happen <laughs> if we actually saw people get healed too. I would be really excited. So if I can believe with this little, then there's much more in store for us. I feel like we're a small community. I feel like we are comfortable with each other. I feel like that can be our danger. Maybe we're a little too comfortable sometimes. Maybe it's too much rote. And so we don't see the point of even reminding each other anymore. We just kind of do our thing. Sorry, I'm gone really long. So let me, I just wanted to do something in the end. Um, I feel like I skipped over a bunch of stuff, but that's fine. <clears throat> I was just reflecting on light and darkness and, you know, all these adjectives that we've given Jesus and God, which have sort of I've, I highlighted today, especially during Advent. Um, St. Simeon was a Christian who lived around year 1100, so this was like the, a long time ago, the end of, of the Viking era, my people's era. And then St. Simeon came about, and he was very, he grieved the state of the church. He felt that it was all dogma, that people just lived by rules, they just lived by scripture. There was no real experience sought out after God. He really longed for experiencing God. Um, and so he, you know, I don't even know how to pronounce it. It's called asceticism? Asceticism. Asceticism. Asketisme. As we say in Denmark. Asketisme. You know, setting yourself apart, not pursuing any sensual pleasure. This is the opposite of our town. Um, seeking deeper to experience God and reflect on God. And that's what he did with his life. And, and often when we judge monasteries, I think we forget what they actually did besides from that. A lot of them actually reached out to communities. They were, there was a life of service, not just of devotion. But he, he has a, an invocation to God, the Holy Spirit, that I want to see if we could read together. Maybe we could stand together and read it together in the light of, of this first Sunday of Advent. I don't know if we have it up here. So St. Simeon wrote this. Some, he was a poet, and he wrote some beautiful words. 
a thousand years ago. And my brother sent this to me when I found out that my dad had fallen down the stairs and we didn't know if he was going to live or die. I know some of you remember that. And I was on the plane and I just opened my text and my brother had found this little piece of poetry from St. Simeon. It's a thousand years old. And when I read it, I just, I bawled. And I just felt that God met me right there. So I wanted to read that today because it's something special to me and I'm, I wanted to, I wanted to read that together. Maybe we could read it all together. I don't know how that works, but we'll be really Eastern right now. One, two, three. Come, true light. Come, life eternal. Come, hidden mystery. Come, treasure without name. Come, reality beyond all words. Come, person beyond all understanding. Come, rejoicing without end. Come, light that knows no evening. Come, unfailing expectation of the saved. Come, raising of the fallen. Come, resurrection of the dead. Come, all-powerful, for unceasingly you create, refashion, and change all things by your will alone. Come, invisible, whom none may touch and handle. Come, for you continue always unmoved, yet at every instant you are wholly in movement. You draw near to us who lie in hell, yet you remain higher than the heavens. Come, for your name fills our hearts with longing and is ever on our lips. Yet who you are and what your nature is, we cannot say or know. Come, alone to the alone. Come, for you are yourself the desire that is within me. Come, my breath and my life. Come, the consolation of my humble soul. Come, my joy, my glory, my endless delight. Jesus, I just pray right now that you will come and you'll meet all of us right here. Right where we are. <clears throat> in that spectrum between the three wise men and Herod. I pray you'll come and meet us in our darkness. Come with your eternal light, your divine light, and bring what scripture says, light of men, you light of our hearts. You bring light into our lives. I just pray for anyone right now who is going through a really rough time and feeling lost, sheltered, isolated, in darkness, can't see straight. I pray right now, Jesus, that you will come with your light, your word, showers over us, full of hope and peace and joy and revitalizes us and brings us back on the path to follow you in sacrifice and service and surrender. In Jesus' name, amen.